out here in the perimeter, there are no stars. Out here, we is stoned, immaculate. Hello and welcome. This is the C86 Show. I'm David Eastall. As you know, we love a special guest. This week, it's going to be the turn of Michael Blair, the American drummer and percussionist who's worked recorded, toured with the likes of Tom Waits, Elvis Costello, Lou Reed, worked with people like Allen Ginsberg, um, alongside Victoria Williams, Ryan Adams, Soul Asylum, and much, much more. But you're going to find about his life in this very interesting interview. So take notes, I will test you at the end. So after several minutes of interesting but casual chat, we get down to that exciting subject that was the early formative years. Michael, it's over to you. Well... It was sort of, it was early 60s. I was born in 1954 in California. And then I was in a military family. So we moved and moved and moved on both coasts. But I started playing an instrument accordion when I was seven years old. So it was fun to have music in the family. And I was listening to my, my father's records that were Nat King Cole, um, Keely Smith, Tony Bennett, you know, and and Leon Bibb, the, the, the folk singer. So I was getting a lot of sort of folk music, sort of jazz pop, you know, in my head when I was really, really, really little. Yes. And then in the early 60s, I was really into pop music and listening to the radio all the time. And in the United States, it was long before the glam thing, but and even before the Beatles hit. And so it was early Motown, very early Motown, like Smokey Robinson mm-hmm. and um, the Beach Boys, the early Beach Boys stuff, uh, the early Four Seasons, you know, that kind of thing. So so that was even before 1963 when the Beatles started happening. But as with most people sort of my age, the you know, guilty is charged, you know, with the, the VJ album, the first Beatles album, I think was called Introducing the Beatles in the United States. And that was 1963, late, late 63. Yeah. And it was on VJ because as all the stories have been told, Capitol wouldn't accept the first um, Beatles album in the United States. So the VJ album, uh, the, the VJ company in Chicago released that. It was Please Please Me, you know, mm-hmm. for the rest of the world. And and actually, the long answer to your question was, I was already really into jazz and show tunes and 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 then the early, like the Four Seasons, Beach Boys, you know, it, it was all over the radio when I was a kid. But then the Beatles, they changed everything. I mean, absolutely. Yes. And did people like Glenn Miller? Did they? Did was he sort of on your sort of or the Andrew sisters or people like Teresa Brewer, people like that? Did they come on your radar as well at um, some? I stage? think you're absolutely right. I mean, not for me, like close to my heart, you know, as a as a as a kid, you know. I, was, I mean, that stuff was my my mother's generation and father's generation and my grandfather's generation. The um, you know, coming up in the 30s and 40s. You know, with with big band and then pop and and like you said, Glenn Miller and Tommy Dorsey with Frank Sinatra and that sort of thing. And the um, how much is that doggy in the window? You know, stuff. You know, that was really like pop, pop, pop music. So I was aware of that. It didn't really touch me as yeah. a child. But and then by the early '60s, I was like, wow. You know, the, the, this sort of Los Angeles, New York, London pop stuff is really starting to turned into something you know so the stuff that you just described I knew that my grandparents really enjoyed that sort of thing but I I that wasn't really my music but I, yes. but I knew it existed absolutely 
And with them, with them, sort of a certain military background in your your sort of father's line, did things like was he involved at all in the Second World War? Had he sort of been stationed in the UK at all at the at any point, or was he always kind of in America? Was that post-war period? Yeah, my father wasn't actually he wasn't old enough to be involved with World War II. My uh, grandfather was my maternal grandfather. Um, he had been he was in the Navy, the American Navy. And he and his family, that was my mother and my my uncle and my grandmother, maternal grandmother, they had been um, stationed in Hawaii a couple of times. So they were actually at Pearl Harbor in December 1941. Mm. So when my when my mom was a kid and my uncle and then my grandparents, they were actually there. And they, my father, my grandfather was a was a radio man working at Pearl Harbor. So um, Unfortunately, they lost a lot of friends and colleagues that day, as did everybody, you know, in Pearl Harbor. But my father, my father joined the Navy in Nebraska. He was from the Middle Middle East, Middle West, um, and Nebraska, right in the middle of the United States. Yes. And, and he, when he graduated from college, he was in the NROTC. So he was a the beginning of um, the Navy um, uh, officer course. So he he went to Korea. So it's a long, long answer to your question. I mean, he served in Korea. That was his first uh, right. in, in, in military action. Yes, that's amazing. Because then you must have been in the house the day that, you know, the news of JFK being assassinated. Did you remember that? Oh, moment? absolutely. I was, yeah, I was in third grade, I think, in 1963, November 1963. So, um, so yeah, I mean, all those things colliding, I, I, I had sort of started to get a feeling like who the Beatles were. Yes. But then I other hand you know i was was in 1963 so i turned nine you know that month and yeah i mean i was i was at school and everybody in california you know got that news you know an hour or two after you know it happened in in texas and 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 yeah i mean everybody was sent home you know all the teachers said everybody go home you know and we stayed home the next day as well when um when lee harvey oswald got shot you know so so i watched that on tv black and white tv like everybody else did it i was only nine but but yeah i mean to see uh to see anybody at that level get killed you know that and that was an eye-opener for me i mean i it hadn't really dawned on me that that could happen Yes, it's kind of boggling, isn't it? Because actually, you would have been very aware of all the the social, political, and cultural changes that took place in the sixties. That would have been a conversation around the 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 tea table, breakfast table. You know, just hearing, you know, what was changing. You know, plus, you know, going to the moon as well, and there, and then the cultural shift of the sixties into that kind of psychedelic period as well. In mm-hmm. in about. I don't know, four years, three, four years after you hit sort of 10, it suddenly right. shifted again. So how were you How were you and your relationship with the parents at this stage? Were they quite happy to kind of embrace this or were they holding holding strong and thinking it's Elvis <laughs> and nothing else? Or were they going, I mean, oh? I mean, they lo- my father liked painting and he played piano and my mother had been an actress and um, had a good speaking and singing voice when she was in high school and college. And so they were both, they were, they were also on the left side of being like a Democrat, you know, in the United States in the early 60s. And so mm-hmm. even, though, even though my father was a naval officer, he was what, what now we would call like a left of center Democrat. 
and my, my mother was as well, you know, so there, there wasn't a religious bias, there wasn't a sexist bias, there wasn't a racial bias in our little family. So I was lucky, you know, in that way. Yes, because uh, they would have had that whole McCarthy period as well, wouldn't they? They would have had that kind of in right, their right. consciousness as well, which must have right. been an absolutely boggling time for anybody, especially in entertainment, because people were being accused of being communists. Oh, exactly. I mean, my dad died when I was when I was 13. He was he was 37. He died in an automobile accident in 1968. So I never really got a chance to talk to him about the 50s. I mean, I was aware of, you know, the, the I mean, the real, you know, um, witch hunts and the and the anti, you know, communist, you know, down on the crazy artists and the writers and the blacklists and all that stuff. I was starting to get a feel for that. But but yeah, like you said, I mean, they were they were young adults in the 50s when that was happening. And and they were absolutely against, you know, things like that. I mean, even though my mother's family was was Navy, my father was in the Navy, you know, so I was sort of two generations by then. It it wasn't it wasn't the let's go kill the bad guys and everybody except for Americans are are the enemy. It would it, our our family was not like that whatsoever. So and, and I guess another part of the answer to the question would be they loved that I played an instrument. They were very supportive when I changed to drums when I was mm -hmm. 10. Um, my first drum kit was a Ludwig a Black Diamond Pearl kit, which was very similar to the Ringo kit, right. you know, which he got. I still have it. I still use it. You know, it, it, I've, you know, I got that when I was, what, 11, maybe. You know, and, and I used it in the little band that I was in, in 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 grade school, and I still use it on records now. You know, so you know, I, I think of, I mean, not to get too mushy, but I think of them fondly when I get out my you know Ludwig kit because that's the one that they got for me when I was eleven years old. Well, yes, absolutely, my God, that's incredible, isn't it? Really. Mm -hmm. So when you, so when you got to sort of sixty-seven, did you sort of have that kind of oh, you know, you would have been 13, 14 at this stage, right. which is kind of a good age, really, isn't it, to sort of discover Jimi Hendrix and the Doors and Morrison and people like that? Did that psychedelic kind of chapter come into your life at all at that stage? Oh, absolutely. Um, my father started bringing me to concerts, like in sixty-six or so. I saw Simon and Garfunkel as a duo. You know, it was sort of. Not so far after the first album that they released, I saw um, the Love and Spoonful, you know, around that time, and, and I had their first records. I was getting all the Simon and Garfunkel records. I had all the Dave Clark Five records. I had all the Herman's Hermits and Beatles and British Invasion albums. I was a huge Kinks fan, you know, and the the original Who singles. I was, I was really sort of, my mind was being blown without understanding what. A mind being blown, <laughs> you know, and yes. to follow that. But but then to follow the psychedelic thing, long before I discovered sort of like my mind expansion from chemicals and that sort of thing, when I got much older, I heard the Jefferson Airplane, the original Jefferson Airplane, well with Grace Slick yes. um, live. I heard the Doors live. Um, there were a lot of bands that I started to listen to then, you know, um, that I was just hugely influenced by. And my family was really happy that I would want to go to these concerts so so yes i got a 
I got a real education. You got a real education on that one. Did you start sort of hanging out at Golden Gate Park and sort of going to the, I remember in 67, there was the gathering of the tribes, weren't they, in January of that right. year where they had people like Tim Leary and Ginsburg and the Grateful Dead were there and and Country Joe and the Fish. Did you did you sort of kind of sort of smell something in the air, which was probably illegal? But um, did, was, was <laughs> were you getting kind of excited at that kind of? Because I talked to Joe Boyd, who was he'd produced the first kind of Pink Floyd stuff and right. um, the Incredible String Band, and he said, you know, in '67 it felt like we'd won. You know, we were they were going to these events like you know he'd set up this club called UFO in London. They went right. to the 14 hour Technicolor Dream at Ali Pali, and it was like you know, watching the sunrise on one of these, you know, after you've had your trip and sort of watched Arthur Brown and Yoko Ono with her art performance, thinking this is it, oh, yeah. everything is changing. Little did, you know, obviously it doesn't doesn't end ter- terribly well, does it? But did you have that sense of rebellion and excitement or did things? It wasn't really rebellion for me. I mean, I was, I'm, I'm younger than Joe. I've, I've met Joe a few times and I've been a big fan of of his productions and we have a lot of colleagues in common and stuff, but he was older than I was. And also I I was pretty much raised at that point in Southern California, which is really different from Northern California. You know, it's almost like it's, there's so many people and it's such a long state from South to North that what was happening in San Francisco was very much different than what was happening like in San Diego or, you know, um, or, or Los Angeles. I mean, in our world, most of the garage bands were sort of surf bands, you know, the with the twangy guitars and Dwayne Eddy and the Ventures and and that kind of thing. So and the Beach Boys and then the beginning of you know the session scene with the Mamas and the Papas and that sort of thing in Los Angeles. I was much more listening to things like that. So I didn't actually go to San Francisco as a teenager, you know, to sort of be involved with that, but. I was buying all those magazines as a 13 or 14 year old, the, the Jefferson airplane and the, and the doors and the birds and David Crosby and what, you know, was happening with the counterculture and drug taking and, you know, turn in, turn, you know, tune in, turn on, you know, drop out kind of thing. I was aware of that because my, my parents were sort of political in that way and military. So I was aware of those things, but I was a little young to, to actually go to the festivals and, you know, that was in the 70s for me. Yes, absolutely. So when you got to that point where suddenly you'd started following people and you found yourself seeing that, you know, Brian Jones, you know, passed away, the, the Rolling Stones were having certain issues with the band. And then the next year, you know, Joplin, Morrison and Hendrix sort of die. And then right. there was Altamont, there was the Manson and, and those murders. Did mm-hmm. you know you would have been sixteen at that stage, and obviously right. a lot had happened already. Did you feel the seventies were going to be a bit tricky, or did you did you all, all still feel excited? Well, I was. It wasn't really black and white in that way, but at the end of the sixties, I was so much into rock music. I was playing drums in in art in, in the American version of high school. You know, I was in politics. I was in sports. I was I was in the bands. You know, um, so there were uh, I was in theater acting, you know, so there were a lot of different things in, in Southern California high school that I just dove in, you know, so we were political, we had we had demonstrations at school, you know, I was sort of the president of everything, you know, my class and then the whole school, my last year there and, you know, so there were a lot of things in the late 60s, early 70s, that were very political for us in Southern California, high school age. Mm. You know, so, Everything from 
from from police to the school systems, you know, to um, a, a gender policy, you know, and, and the beginning of the feminist movement and that sort of thing. That was very influential for me. But yeah, I mean Woodstock and Altamont and that sort of thing. I, I was, I was, wow. One of the things that changed a big thing for me in 1969, I think it was, I was visiting my uncle in New York. I mean, this is sort of an answer in a way that he 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 gave me some money to go to a record store in 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 New York City, and and to get whatever I wanted basically, you know, which was lovely, you know, for me as a like you said, you know, yeah. dean or something like that. So what what I got that day was the um, the second Blood, Sweat and Tears album, which had Spinning Wheel and that those amazing you know arrangements, you know, with that full sort of like little big band, and then um led zeppelin one you know the with 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 your your time is going to come you know and just all of that stuff i knew who led zeppelin was because i was a jimmy page fan from yardbirds so right. that was a big thing for me and then and then the first crosby stills and nash album you know so that day i got those three albums and brought them back to my uncle's apartment and just listened and listened and listened and that was a big mind-blowing moment for me because i was thinking wow three completely different sounding bands with with the A-list of musical virtuosity and uh, clarity in what the band was, what the what those bands were. And then for me, I was a young sort of politically oriented musical sports kind of guy, you know, at that age. And I was thinking, this is a gold mine. I mean, at the time, I didn't necessarily think I was going to be a professional musician, but but listening to those and the stories, the politics, the the the, the characterizations, the way the, the melodies worked with, with with the harmonies. I mean, I, yeah, I mean, I'm still learning from all of those records. Yes, absolutely. And also, there was the the backdrop of Vietnam, and right, you know, right. the students being shot at Ohio, which must have been absolutely horrendous and sort of frightening mm. as well. How did that sort of kind of mix in during that kind of period as well? Because obviously, this this backdrop of kind of complete violence and war that was kind of being seen in napalm. No, no, absolutely. I mean, my father, as a military officer, he actually worked at the Pentagon for two years. He was um, in the, the the Office of Naval Manpower, like working for the Joint Chiefs of Staff in 1966 and 67. So um, when I was 11 and 12, I met the Joint Chiefs of Staff at the Pentagon as a little kid you know with the as the the child of someone who was in those offices and mm. and, and they were where were where what was happening the the structure the 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 protocol um the goals of what was happening in southeast asia and that sort of thing and to make a long story a, a tiny bit shorter he would actually come home from work sometimes and and we had top secret you know um documents at home all the time because because he was working in those offices you know that it was it was the national news but it was my dad's job you know yeah. at, at the pentagon and and he the actual answer i think to the question that you posed was at that age he even said robert mcnamara and lyndon johnson have vietnam wrong this is this is not going to end well it's not it's not the war that the american public thinks it is it's not the war that the american public is being sold by the 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 department of defense and 
and Lyndon Johnson as president, even in a democratic um, um, you know, setting with, with my mother and father being Democrats, you know, voting yeah. Democrats. But he he knew he knew that Johnson didn't have it right. And this was like this was like the year or so before Johnson even said in 1968, we don't have it right. Because they actually he actually said that when he when Johnson decided not to run in 1968 again, you know, to be president, he actually said out loud, this is not going well. I, I, I can't really represent the country this way, so I'm not going to you know, um, uh, run again, which is unfortunately where um, Richard Nixon got in. But, yes. but the longer answer is I was aware of that. I was absolutely aware of that as, as an 11-year-old because those were our dinner conversations at home. You know, my father would actually just come right out and talk about his work that way. You know, he wasn't trying to sugarcoat it. He wasn't trying to be, you know, the 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 big macho guy, you know, at Pentagon, at the Pentagon. He was going like, I've got information and this is really not good. <laughs> you know, <laughs> long, long before Kissinger and, and blowing up Laos and all that other stuff. But he was really concerned. Yes, I would imagine so. So when you when you got to 18, do you then, you're, you know, in America, do you go to university or college at that stage and start studying music in even more precision? Oh, absolutely. Um, I went to a tiny college in Southern California called Johnston College, which was sort of a hippie school. There were sort of like ex-Harvard young, you know, um, there was gestalt therapy and and mind games and all this like early 70s stuff but yes. you know from from you know from people from MIT and Harvard and Stanford and that sort of thing they were the they were the um teachers you know the, the, my first teachers cuz i was originally going to read to be a psychotherapist you know when i went to college but soon thereafter there was a small um music school and there was an orchestra and an avant-garde music ensemble and um, great percussion teachers. So I changed my major in 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 America. It's called the major, you know, the line yeah. you know, that I was going to take in college. So instead of uh, reading psychology, I read music. So yeah, I, do, I dove right into it. Absolutely. Yes. And did you at that stage sort of look at John Bonham and think, yes, that's who I want to be, and then think, oh, no, I there's a jazz guy, I want to be that. Oh, there's a blues. Oh, my God, there's folk music as well. How did you sort of keep focus when there was kind of so much that you were listening to? Because because mostly when people get into that age of the late yeah. teens, 20s, mm-hmm. and they're in a band, you know, their influences are quite small because they've only had a few years to sort of fixate on something and, and sort of slightly copy it. So how did you, did you start sort of going down sort of very interesting rabbit holes at this stage? I sort of went through, I went into all of the rabbit holes in a way, you know, because I, had, I was already fairly well read in, in different styles. And I was 17 when I started college and the, I was young in, in my grade, you know, so when I started university, I was 17 and and I had already been a big um, Led Zeppelin fan. I'd already seen Led Zeppelin live. I'd already seen, you know, when I was 18, I saw The Who live. Um, I'd seen Creedence Clearwater live. I'd seen Poco live. You know, so. Had you seen five. Cream at all, Ginger Baker? I did. I did. I saw, I saw Cream, um, their, their next to last show in California before they went back to England and broke up. You know, so. Right. That, that last week or two, it was San Diego and then Los Angeles. And then they went back, I think, to the to Royal Albert Hall or something like that. And then they broke up afterwards. So so I saw them like two weeks before they broke up. 
Right. My God, you, you've seen the major dramas at this stage, haven't you, at this point? Yeah. I didn't I didn't really understand sort of how bands worked in that way. But uh, but sort of to, to get back to what you were saying, Ginger Baker, I was really interested in um, the the session players that were playing on the Mamas and the Papas and the Beach Boys records and Burt Bacharach records. They were all the same musicians. And I was starting to get a feel that that was true. Um, I was studying with the principal percussionist from the Los Angeles Philharmonic. You know, he was my main percussion teacher in, in that first few years of college. So I started, I mean, you know, Philly Joe Jones, you know, with Miles, you know, and, and Tony Williams, like you said, John Bonham, you know, Keith Moon. I didn't necessarily think that I could be any of them because they were so singular in their personalities. I didn't necessarily think that I could copy them or that I really wanted to, mm. but but I absolutely started to feel that I wanted to be in bands that were that good. Yes. And what about I, the, the kind of avant-garde people like um, Captain Beefheart or Zappa? Because I did an interview with John Trombo French once. I remember okay. him at the end, I said, what would you tell your 16-year-old self? And he said, to to have been with Crosby, Stills and Nash and made lots of money rather than be with Captain and just be tortured emotionally. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's an interesting thing because I didn't know Beefheart's people. I mean, I mean, at the end, after Beefheart sort of stopped having his band, I actually worked with Gary Lucas and Morris Tepper, you know, who were who were you know the yes. Captain's last two guitar players. You know, so I'd worked with both of them in the eighties. I mean, years after they had left, you know, Dawn and and. And even after I had started playing, you know, with weights, you know, I was starting to meet people sort of uh, of that ilk, you know, who were that good and, and that sort of, you know, personally um, uh, developed, you know, on in, in their on their instruments. So I was lucky that way. But yeah, the, um, I, w- I was hanging out with people like Harold Budd and and the people from um, the, uh, Cal Arts, the California Institute for the Arts, you know, John um, 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 uh, Bergamo. Right. And, and I knew who Emil Richards was, you know, from the LA session scene. And I was a huge fan of of um of Victor Feldman, you know, the percussion player who actually was the percussion player later on on uh, Swordfish Trombones, you know, with right. stuff. So even in the 70s, I was starting to listen to people like that. And then of course, Weather Report, you know, with Ayerto and um Eric Kravat and um um Alex Acuña and Chester Thompson and Manolo Badrena you know during during the 70s while I was in college that actually those were the bands that I really wanted to be in I wanted to play with Miles in the 70s I wanted to be in a band like Weather Report I wanted to be in a band like um the the sort of folk um the, the acoustic folk band uh Oregon Yes, that had Ralph Towner and stuff. Colin Walcott was a big hero for me. I got to meet them eventually and play with Paul McCandless, the the oboe player from Oregon. So I started to meet people like that. And and yeah, I, I didn't necessarily want to be in Led Zeppelin then, but I really wanted to be in Oregon or or Weather Report, you know, in in, in my heart, you know. Yes, I, absolutely. Because I could play, I could play any instrument that I could bring to the session. You know, it didn't necessarily, it didn't have to be Latin, it didn't have to be rock, it didn't have to be anything. It's, it was anything that I could think of that sounded really great, I could bring, you know, to a band, you know, so, so that was my, that was my goal. Yeah, it's interesting, because I did an interview with Hunt Sells, who was, you know, with the Sells brothers, who were with Iggy Pop, and then David Bowie and Tim Machine, and he, 
and he came from his father was Soupy Sales, which was that right. kind of comedian. But he had a very jazz background, so he he sort of was fixated on jazz musicians that okay. he sort of was copying and and bringing that into his rock and punk sort of kind of uh, sort of arena, I suppose, and narrative. Did you did you sort of also delve into those kind of musicians from that period, fifties and sixties, the jazz drummers at that point? I did actually. I mean, Roy Haynes. And and Joe Jones, I met I met Papa Joe. I met him once at the Zildjian factory, the Zildjian cymbal factory. He was I was there picking out cymbals one day, and he was actually there picking out his cymbals one day. You know, so you know that that was you know you know you you bow down at the father of the hi hat and you know expressive jazz drumming. So I didn't necessarily think that I could swing well enough, or I wasn't sort of a I wasn't that kind of groove jazz person in a way I didn't necessarily think that I would be good enough to really play in bands like that I mean I wanted to learn so I could groove and have a you know, a good um sound quality and tonal you know uh, I wanted my listening yes that's a good way to put it I wanted my listening to be as good as players like that I didn't necessarily think I could go ding 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 as well as any of them ever at all. But maybe maybe I could listen and interpret and absorb music as well as they did. Yes. And did you, were you fascinated with the Beatles film, the eight hour one that they did? Um, or, um, was it Peter Jackson who did this? I get back. Yes. Did you see that eight hours and sort of watch, you know, Ringo and the way he held the Beatles together at times and, and the kind of interest in the, the relationship he had both with Paul, but also with John as well? Oh, no, absolutely. The um, One thing I'd, I'd started to think of, I mean, I was a huge Beatles fanatic, so I've got all of the all of the, the vinyl from the 60s in mono. I've got all of the vinyl from the 60s in the bad stereo. Um, I've got all the CDs. I've got bootlegs. Um, I've got you know the, the the boxes that have come out the last twenty or thirty years. I, and and books and books and books and books about you know all the studio experiences and which amp they use and all this other stuff. So watching the Get Back movie, I was sort of well read enough in in sort of like what they went through. I thought yes, sort of, sort of watch that. One of the things that, that that I was reminded of again as a player or as a fan of drumming and being in bands was Ringo's right hand on the on the hi hat, you know that 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 sort of bish 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 kind of thing that he did so well was absolutely in the pocket with John Lennon's right hand with John's rhythm playing, you know John's timing and Ringo's timing as rhythm section players glued i think the beatles together a lot of the way and so and and george was a little less sort of like in the pocket as far as like where the downbeats were it sort of floated a little bit especially when he was younger and he was still getting his sort of like chet atkins thing together yes. and then and then mccartney was just like so melodic you know it was just like things were moving all over the place but ringo's right this is maybe over overly dramatic but Ringo's right hand and John's right hand were absolutely metronomically glued together you know it, it was almost like Charlie Watts and and Keith Richards you know yeah. rather than rather than the bass and drums being the anchor I thought it was the drums and rhythm guitar 
in the Beatles and the Stones with a lot of those records, you know, that was the anchor. So I was absolutely fascinated. And, and as a session player and having been in a lot of bands, I really felt for Ringo while he was watching John and Paul and George figure out what the hell was going on with the songs. Yes. You know, because they're not asking him to sort of play a groove that they could work on. You know, they were really like back and forth, like what's the harmony, you know, what does this song mean, you know, and all this other stuff. And then he's got, you know, time, literally time on his hands, you know, so <laughs> what is what is it? The, 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 the patience of a saint you yes. know, in Ringo, you know, God bless him. I can't... But, but, but for me also as a fan, I've ended up working with um, the drummer, Jim Keltner. Uh, quite a bit over the years who's who's a really really good friend of Ringo's you know for all those years and then also um the producer T-Bone Burnett right also has worked with Jim and has worked with Ringo and all this other stuff and and what I learned from I never met Ringo but what I learned from from Keltner and T-Bone was that their view of what Ringo brought to everything from the Beatles and then Ringo's solo records and then Ringo as a session player for other people is literally like Ringo says now. He was he was the click track. Right. You know, Ringo says now at eighty two, when people you know talk to him, well, when you were coming up, there weren't any click tracks, and you know, blah 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 blah. What do you do now? And Ringo just like looks at the camera and goes like, I was the Beatles' click track. It didn't fucking move. Hardly anything sped up or slowed down. And then there was all of the, this. There was this pocket in between each downbeat, and and you could you know you could drive a train through that. And the, and the Beatles, you know, I mean, the, the Beatles prospered partially because when Ringo finally decided, okay, now I can start playing the part. Yeah. John's, John and George's and Paul's, this is a little sort of overly dramatic because I'm a drummer, but their, their jobs became a little more simple, not easy, but more clear, you know. Here's where the thing is. This is what get back is. This is an interesting hi-hat thing. You know, come together, you know, the da 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 Once they finally started making those decisions, you could drive a train through those tracks. You know, and and as a player, you know, the guitar players, you know, God bless Ringo, because they could glue themselves onto onto his groove. Absolutely. Yes, 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 I know he's so appreciated. Then after your, but then you go to more study, don't you, during the next yes. part of the 70s as well. At yep. this stage, were you just fixated on learning and even learning even more at this point rather than sort of heading off and trying to form some band? No, absolutely. I, I got my degree and I went to two different colleges. This, this Johnston College, the sort of hippie school where you sort of learn how to learn. But then I was studying percussion in Los Angeles and then the University of Illinois in Champaign, which is about three hours south of Chicago. That was one of the biggest, most respected percussion schools in the country. I mean, there were 20 percussion majors, you know, so we all learned conducting. We we played on each other's you know, compositions. We worked in the in the modern dance um, department. Um, half the people were composers, you know, there was a huge, um, you know, composition department who wrote music for people like us, you know, so, so one could be in the opera orchestra, the symphony orchestra, the jazz band, you know, and all that sort of thing. So, so absolutely, I, I tried to learn everything that I possibly could. And I got my degree in percussion to performance. And then I started graduate school right. you know, to, to, to go, you know, to get my next degree in performance as well. 
Blimey, you really did study there. So when did when did you manage to sort of say that's it? I've I've done enough studying. I'm now going to sort of be in bands, be in the studio, sort of doing session work. Well, what ended up happening was let's see, it was the first year I was finishing the first year of my graduate work. So I was 21, 21, something like that, 21, 22. And my percussion teacher in Illinois, um, a former student of his was actually in the band, the Paul Winter Consort, right. which was the band where Oregon and Ralph Towner, that's the band that they came from, you know, from years ago. So from years before. So I was, you know, and, and there was going to be an audition for a percussion spot in that particular band. You know, it was it was oboe, electric cello, um, bass, drums, multi percussion, you know, saxophone. It, it was right up my alley, like the the sort of world music alley that I was sort of being the most interested in at that point. And I got the gig. You know, I was recommended for it by my percussion teacher, and I got the gig. So I moved to New York. It was the summer of '77, and my girlfriend at the time um, was a modern dancer at school. And she got a she got a um a gig with a small uh, dance company as well in New York. So we moved we moved to the big city. Blimey! I, I, I went on the road with the Paul Winter Consort, and and she started studying and and performing with a small dance company, and and there we were. You know, we were right in the middle of of the New York thing in in the middle of '77. '77. So this is the period where. You know, the, the birth of punk, disco, rap started. Yes. I'm not sure if rap had started by then, but then there was a huge amount of, you know, disused buildings and, and crime, poverty, drugs. And, you know, there were CBGBs, wasn't there? Max's right. Kansas City, the, that kind of punk period that started. And there was a record label, wasn't there? Z Records that started around that time that, you know, signed a lot of bands. James Chance, Lydia Lunch, people like that. There was Talking oh, Heads, the Ramones. And there was also people like... Is it Joey Aria who was the kind of the great kind of performing? I don't know what a drag act wasn't he? I think, and there was Klaus Nomi who who was also part of that kind of gay scene in in New York. So, were you? Did you sort of find yourself slightly crossing into the world of the Warhol Factory at this point? I did actually. I mean, I didn't know Andy's people. I didn't know Warhol at all. I mean, this was long before I, I played with Lou and stuff, but. But yeah, in the early 80s, I was playing in bands. I was in one band with the bass player from John Cale's band. And, and a lot of the, like I said before, so a, a lot of my best friends in the music scene were also working with modern dance companies and avant-garde um, performance, like performance art groups and stuff like that. So absolutely. So 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 yeah, the um, my buddies were in bands like DNA, Oh um, yes, the early the early lounge lizards, um, um, uh, uh, not Yoko's people. I met I met Yoko's people later, but but yeah, I mean everybody that I knew, not everybody, but that's oversimplified. But almost every most of the people that I was playing with were playing sort of upper west upper west side sort of jazz ish, you know Maxwell's kind of groovy jazz stuff. Um, also lower east side. Great Gildersleeves, you know CBGBs, um, um, the the, um, the Pyramid Club, you know. So in in the punk scene, and then the, the upper the upper East Side was flibbity wibbity, way too many notes, um, fusion <laughs> bands, you know. So and then and then Greenwich Village folk rock bands. You know? yes. So for me in the late seventies, early eighties, I was in bands that played in all of those places. You know? yes. So and it was the same thing like 
even though I was with the Winter Consort, I, I was meeting, you know, Steve Reich and uh, in, in his, his ensemble, the, the percussion players were friends of mine and, and Philip Glass's people and, and the, the performance artist and singer and composer Meredith Monk lived in the building that I lived in. And Colin Walcott from the band Oregon was like her best friend. You know, so even though I was younger than they were, I was starting to meet people like that. Um, the Ramones, Television, Blondie, and bands like that were a little older than I was. Right. You know, talking heads and stuff, but I was going to hear them. Yes. And then during those years when they started getting really famous, some of the bands that I was in that were not famous, we were actually playing at all of those clubs as well. You know, so I spent plenty of time in CBGBs, you know, just like the pictures, you know, with the with those horrible bathrooms and the the really sort of embarrassing and awful backstage. And you know, it looked and smelled as bad as people think. Yes, but, but but then you got to play at CBGBs. I mean, that was where a lot of people, you know, sort of really you learned your craft. You know, yeah. so I was and, that and were you aware of that kind of the UK kind of new wave scene that started all post punk, really, wasn't it? Sort of people right. like Magazine, Gang of Four, Public Image Limited, you know, the police, not quite, but you know, they were part of that scene. You know, you must have went, oh, Stuart Coblin, nice drumming, um, things like that. Boy. Well, I mean. Yeah, I went through my Stuart phase, you know, where, where I had way too many Tom Toms and, and the Octobons and 50 million Pisces cymbals. You know, I started playing Pisces cymbals because he was playing Pisces cymbals. And you're like, bugger, 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 you know, Vinnie Coliuto then was playing, you know, he was like 20 or something. Him and Terry Bozio, you know, were playing with, with Zappa in Los Angeles. And Stuart was playing, you know, in, in 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 that. And Simon Phillips was a young player, you know, coming up. And so Steve Steve Jordan, the drummer, was was playing, you know, with, uh, I, I think, on the David Letterman show and that sort of thing. So, so, yeah, I mean, I was like, how can I... How can I not be as good as them or copy them? That's not what I meant, but how can I be good enough that I could get offered or be in the middle of bands that were that good? Yes. I didn't that... want to be Steve Jordan. I didn't want to be Stuart Coughlin, but I was thinking, how can I develop a voice on my instruments, percussion, hand percussion, avant-garde percussion and drum set? How could I, how could I make my own mishmash, you know, where people would ask me? you know, to play on really, really great records eventually like them. Yes. Is that the thing that you wanted, a signature sound, like you, someone would hear it, oh, that's that's Michael, that that, that is definitely Michael's drumming. Was that oh, something that, that you would think, I really want a signature sound, you know, like John Bonham or, you know, my, yeah, Stuart Copeland, people like that? Oh, absolutely. I mean, I've got an ego as big as a house. You know, the, the it, it wasn't like I didn't think I could break through in New York. It was a matter of when for me. And not not having the, the the sort of sort of physical gifts um, or the drive, the physical drive, like a Stuart Copeland or a Vinnie Coliuda or or even a Jim Keltner, you know, and 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 that kind of, I didn't necessarily have that depth that, that some of my heroes have had. I mean, maybe that's false modesty because I ended up doing okay, but but yeah, I mean, I, I didn't necessarily want anybody else's gig. I didn't want to you know, win over, you know, someone else's, you know, the schoolyard, you know, where they were doing what they were doing. But but absolutely, I didn't go to New York to sort of see what would happen. I did not yes. move to 
New York to sort of like, well, you know, this might be this might be okay, and it's a big city, so we'll see what happens. It was like, no, 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 I'm gonna I'm gonna be in bands that are internationally well known. I'm gonna be able to connect the the multi percussion avant garde world to my drum kit playing. You know, I would like to be the Ringo of the avant garde. And there was a lot of avant garde in New York at that stage as well, wasn't oh, absolutely. it? Absolutely. It was, it, it was oozing. Did you come across people like Anne Magnuson, who was part of that kind of gang? I think they had a 12-piece female band. I can't remember. Pulsa Leary or something like that. No, oh, Pulsa. Pulsa no, you're right. You're absolutely right. I had met her. I mean, there, like you said, there was Lydia Lunch. There was her. Um, uh, there there were the, the Warhol, you know, uh, transvestites. You know that um, there was Wayne County. You know that there were the there the, there were sort of the heroin bands. You know from from the the, the lower west, east oh, side. Oh yes, Johnny Johnny Thunders, New York Dolls, and Suicide. Oh right, exactly. And so I mean, I wasn't necessarily in those in those groups, but it, it really mattered to me that that artists who were that theatrical and and that sort of devoted to their own personalities in a way. I mean, again, sometimes too much. And narcissistic and unhealthy and that sort of thing but i didn't necessarily think i needed to be a miserable you know like junkie to make good work but but i could sort of understand where the where someone was actually making decisions about how to express themselves yes and that was and and yes i mean i was a huge xdc fan really really early um i was a, a, a an elvis costello and the attractions fan like really really early um police really early you know i was um and, and also um people that i ended up working with and, and meeting later on I, I i was listening to um henry um henry cow and um uh, slap happy and um there there were D dagmar krause krause you know and can you oh, know, yes. and, and groups like that and i was like wow chris cutler you know, the, the drummer that was on and some of those bands, I was thinking, I want to be like Chris Cutler. You know, I want to be, I want to be like Chris Cutler and Colin Walcott combined, you know, Colin from the band Oregon. You know, yes. or, or if I could combine those sort of ways of thinking where you could play a song that is as well built as a Kurt Vile, you know, theater piece and then get the spling splong, what was then called eventually called like junkyard percussion, you know, into the drum kit and make that work. I was like, sign me up. You know, that's <laughs> I, I need to find artists that are interested in that stuff because that's exactly what I want to that's what I want to develop. Yes, we we love the Weimar Republic, don't we? So that that period, <laughs> was always... well, the industrial stuff, you know, and then you know, I, I ended up working with Blixa Bar, you know, Bargill oh, you know, a few Blixa. years ago. You know, long after, you know, he left, you know, Neubauten and all that other stuff. But I knew who they were. You know, I was starting to meet people, you know, like Jim Sklavunos, you know, when he was in Eight-Eyed Spy, you know, long before he was working with Nick Cave. And so so I was starting to meet people who were developing that kind of vocabulary. Yeah. You know, from world. And then starting to get picked up by by those like real poets, you know, like storytelling, you know, band leaders. And, I, and, and you know, by by the time... By the mid '80s, I was like, I need to get into a band like that. <laughs> <laughs> so when did when because was the first one Rain Dogs? Then was that right. your yes. big moment? Was that the one that sort of opened a few more doors for your next kind of real chapter? No, absolutely. Um, Tom and Kathleen, you know his his wife partner, 
and then Island Records, you know, they, they had, they, they ended up with a list. He had already been in New York, I think, for a year, maybe, you know, um, starting to write what ended up being Black Rider and some of the other theatrical. Had he, had he done his Francis Ford Coppola film by then? Yes, he did. Right. Right. He, he met Kathleen on a Coppola film, uh, and, and which was like five years before that. And then they got together and then Swordfish Trombones was uh, rejected by Asylum. And then Chris Blackwell from Ireland said, I'll take that. Thank you very much. <laughs> and so, um, I mean, I wasn't there when that happened, but that was Victor Feldman, you know, playing all of these percussion instruments that were from all over the world and extremely tactile. And and Tom had a, a Harry Parch understanding of different kinds of tuning and keyboards and string instruments and percussion instruments that were sort of non-Western and non-traditional. Tom yeah. was absolutely like, if, if he could explore that kind of stuff, you know, in sound, he, he was he was moving toward having those kinds of sounds in all of his songwriting, even though his bulletproof songwriting was still intro, verse, chorus, you know, bridge, outro. You could you could make really sort of conservative versions of all of those songs. And then they still stand up because they're so beautifully written. But he didn't want the actual expression of those particular songs to be that way. So anyway, long story longer, as usual, um, I was on the list, you know, that included people that had worked with Laurie Anderson, people that were working with Brian Eno and David Byrne. And, and I had been heard in some other bands you know, right. where I was an interesting percussionist, you know, from downtown New York, you know, with with people that I had respected. And I got a call from the uh, from the PA, you know, the, the personal assistant, the production assistant from from Island Records, who would uh, see me on the list, and then also Bob Muso, Robert Muso, who was the um, the uh, the engineer, you know, the recording engineer for Rain Dogs. You know, he'd had a big, he, he'd had a reputation doing a lot of avant-garde world music, you know, downtown New York stuff as an engineer and brilliant, brilliant man and great guitar player. We had worked on an off-Broadway project together. Mm -hmm. So he knew sort of how I was thinking as a multi-percussion player who also played drums. So he also recommended me. So I was recommended, I was on the list in two ways, you know, so I, I tipped my head and, you know, be, be very grateful to Bob, you know, Muso that, 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 that helped bring me in so i got the call had all my road cases with instruments from china and japan and thailand and three drum kits you know the ringo drum kit yeah. and, and 40 cymbals and pieces of car parts and all that and and i could play marimba okay i could play vibraphone pretty well glockenspiel you know my sort of background in orchestral percussion i could sort of do enough yeah you know, that, sort of make arrangements of all of those things and then the, the first song that I played they, so they brought me down and then I opened up all of my road cases and, and said to Tom you know here's here's a whole bunch of stuff you know here 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 are like a thousand different you know like bits and pieces of stuff so let's start picking things that look like they're fun and we can start to build the tracks you know this way and he put up Big Black Mariah first for me and I did the clank and crunch part on that as an overdub because yeah. that was one of the first tracks that they had ready to go and and then that was it you know i was they invited me back you know every day after that you know so as you said i mean that that ended up being rain dogs 
Yes, and the, and, the, and the sort of, yes, it's kind of because he'd done Swordfish, which I guess is the introduction that a lot of people had at that stage. Because yep, I, I think he'd come to the UK a few times and performed on the tube, which was one of those programs we had on a Friday afternoon, evening. So, um, and well, then we played was... on the tube in 1985. Oh, you know, did you? I mean, he was probably there before because he had, like you said, he, he had toured a lot since the mid 70s, you know, up to then. But, you know, Polly Yates and, and Jules. You know they were they were the they were the the presenters. You know so the the Rain Dogs band. Yeah, we we did we did that. I think we were on with REM or something like that, if I remember correctly. It, right. it, was, like, it was like one of those legendary tube moments. You know, yes, sure it was there before us, but 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 yeah, we did that as well. God, that was that was classic. Because then you know after that, where do you sort of head? Do you keep with Tom at this stage, or do you sort of veer mm-hmm. off into other directions? Not really veer off. I mean. I mean, exactly like you said. I mean, when I've when I've been teaching and and talking about career and stuff and and being ready, be, being ready for a break or being ready for an opportunity, the I say to my students the day before I went into the studio with weights that first day with Rain Dogs, I was an interesting New York percussion player. The day after that, I was Tom Waits's percussion player. Yes. And, and absolutely, Mark Rebo, the guitarist, came in, you know, that week, you know, and and Ralph Carney, the the saxophone player, came in, you know, during that period. So the next, the band that became the Rain Dogs band, we sort of came in, you know, right then, you know, at RCA Studios where Elvis Presley and Frank Sinatra and all kinds of people had recorded. So there were ghosts in the building when we were there. But to answer your question, boy, that first tour. Uh, it was uh, who who came to see us? Bette Midler, who was an old friend, um, uh, David Byrne, David Bowie, um, uh, Sting saw us in in Paris. You know, the, the Elvis Costello, you know, saw us a bunch of times. Um, we got to know you too. Then we got to know REM then because they were big Tom Waits fans. Yes. So they were really coming to a, a lot of people were coming to these shows, and the answer to the question was. I ended up working with a bunch of those people because they heard me play with Tom. And, and during, during one of those tours, it was in Los Angeles with Tom and, and Elvis Costello and T-Bone Burnett were making the record that was going to be called King of America. Oh God, I love that album so much. So the last track, me too. And, and the last track that was, was finished was um, the cover "Don't Let Me Be Misunderstood," yes. the animal song, and so T Bone and and Elvis came to one of the Tom shows and said, because we had a day off the next day, and he goes, "Michael, can you come in and and do a marimba part for Don't Let Me Be Misunderstood?" You know, so we brought a marimba to the studio, and I worked out a part, and 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 you know the headphones. I was just in heaven. I mean, the, the, for anybody who's listening to this, who has headphones on doing wondering how you you know it pinched me you know i'm in this room the track was done already so i was doing the overdubs but it was jerry chef on bass from you know elvis presley's band from the 70s mm. and, and dylan and jim keltner on drums who played with everybody that i loved and mitchell Froome on organ and elvis and um and t-bone burnett on guitar and 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 then that was the track and, and then elvis was going to do a guide vocal you know, so Elvis did a guide vocal. He had a cold, 
you know, it, 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 you know, his lungs full. It, it, you know, it, it wasn't. He didn't like it very much. But then at least he did a guide vocal because we needed something to sort of help finish the track. And then I worked out the marimba part, and I went scrape, 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 and I did. I, I got to do the do 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 do. Oh yes, yes, that's a classic. On marimba, for fuck's sake! You know, it's like they let me. They let me double the riff. Yeah, and you know, for me. I was just in heaven. It's like, this is the coolest thing in the world because, you know, many, many, you know, a zillion years before that, I was a huge animals fan as well. Mm. You know, so I was thinking, this, yeah, this can't get much better. And what ended up happening was they, they finished the track, they used everything that I did, and then they also used Elvis's uh, guide vocal because he went back to try to make it better and it never got better. Anyway, long story longer, again, then Elvis invited me to be in the first version of The Confederates. So when the King of America tour was first put together after King of America came out, it was James Burton yeah. on guitar from Elvis Presley, Jerry Sheff on bass from Elvis Presley, Jim Keltner on drums from John Lennon and George Harrison, uh, Mitchell Froome, you know, the, the producer on organ, and me. So I, I was on marimba, vibraphone, tambourine, multi-percussion, all this other stuff, you know, with Keltner. And, and so, so, yeah. And then after that, I kept working with Elvis. Yes. Um, but but I, well, after King of America, the next year we did um, Frank's Wild Years with, uh, with Tom in Chicago. So again, to answer your question, I kept on working with Tom and then I started working with Elvis. So, you know, from, from project to project, I got to sort of, you know, leapfrog you know, between them. And yes. then I was doing, I was doing sessions with, with Suzanne Vega and I played on Sean Colvin's, you know, first album for Columbia that got the big Grammy. And, you know, so I, 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 I ended up being in that New York world, you know, oh, I was, New York. Had to, was the Sean Colvin, was that Sunny Come Home album or was that? The no, I, I played on the actual first one. Yeah. Sunny mm -hmm. Came Home was the one where she got record of the year. Right. But I think she actually got like a gold record and a Grammy for, like new artist or something, it was steady on. You know, that was the first album that she did. Yeah. So I did all the percussion and the layering and stuff on that one as well. And, yes. Um, and then Suzanne Vega's third album, you know, so I, I got bumped up. You did I got get bumped, bumped up, up in the universe. I did, you know, and then, you know, I Tom and Kathleen, they put me in a spotlight that that really just made a complete difference. Yes, it's interesting because Susa, because those two, there's two artists there. Mm -hmm. <laughs> the the Elvis Costello, obviously, he was having a few moments with his band, the attractions, so right. things weren't going quite there. And Suzanne Vega was having real problems with her third album, wasn't she? That was kind of her tricky one as mm -hmm. well. Because I've I've done vague, funny enough, I've done quite a lot of interviews with people who played with Suzanne on those first okay. three albums, and it was kind of interesting because I don't think. That experience that kind of left her. I don't think she plays any material from that third album. Did you? And because because she did the first one and thought she'd sell you know twenty thousand copies. This right. New York singer songwriter. It was like oh you you're now a megastar. You're going to tour the world. We'll completely right. do you. Then we would like a new album quite quickly because actually you know people are quite fickle. So could you get on with it? And that was quite tricky, wasn't it? Getting her second album together. Well, the second album. The third one, actually, the one I played on, I think, like you said, is the tricky one. It was Days of Open Hand. That's and that was when I she was on. with Anton, wasn't it? Yes, Anton Sanko. And I was good friends with all of them. I mean, they were all working with Sean Colvin as well. It was the same management company. And and it was after Luca. 
I mean, the the good news was that the Solitude Standing album was the one that blew up, you know, with, with Luca and, and Tom's Diner and all that sort of stuff. She might not play very much stuff from, from um, for better or worse. I mean, I won't take it personally. I hope it's not just because of all the, of all the clanks and crunches and the marimba parts, you know, that, that Anton Sanko and I worked on, you know, on the third album. But, but yeah, I mean, that was a breakup album for her after that she and Anton broke up and, and, and yeah, I mean, it, it, it wasn't, it wasn't the big hit, but, but at least I got to play on an album, you know, with like 12 Suzanne Vega songs. I mean, that was pretty cool. Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, I was at that stage kind of very intrigued because I, I don't know if you you probably didn't go to her Glastonbury when she was she was playing the, the main pyramid stage on the Saturday okay. night. Got her her death threat. So she's got this big coat on that she had to wear. Right. I heard about that. Because yeah. um, I think the bass player had sort of found himself with a strange stalker who wanted to kill them both so um it's rock and roll isn't it these 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 things always happen right folk and roll i mean right if you if you grow up in new york you 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 think if you're if you've got an acoustic guitar and and four o'clock in the morning and no one understands me that you might you know get away from the violence but you know people are nuts people get nuts and and right exactly they stake out celebrity and 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 then take it too personally it's too bad yes and spike because obviously elvis you know right. by then had had sort of the attractions him and bruce weren't getting on so well were they i think right. and and so he was kind of veering to a quite a different one so when he did spike again that was quite a different sound wasn't it absolutely and the songs are great a lot but- of it- yeah i mean for better or worse i mean a lot of the reason that it doesn't sound like other other Elvis Costello records is partially because of me. I mean, I, I was, I was, it was T-Bone, Burnett and me and, and the engineers, Kevin Killen and, and Elvis. I mean, we were, we were the, the first team to actually start doing all the tracks together. And, and Elvis really won. I mean, some of the stuff was done in Dublin and some of the stuff was done in, 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 in London, but, but he really wanted to, changed the sort of sonic texture for a lot of his songs and and he loved the tom Waits stuff so what much and and he and i had already been playing together because i was in the first version of the confederates and so so he asked me early on you know when he was writing the stuff with um with mccartney i mean i was already on board you know yes. so and hardly anybody had heard the songs yet and i i still have that i still have the cassette you know from from paul and elvis you know the 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 duet songs you know that Four of them went on Flowers in the Dirt and the others, you know, ones went on our record. And, but yeah, I mean, he, he really wanted, he he was, Elvis was understanding more or curious more about some of the downtown New York stuff. Mm-hmm. He didn't necessarily want it to be avant-garde, but, but he was thinking, well, maybe percussion could be a little different, you know, and, and combining drums and percussion or taking traditional drums kit away and then building up another kind of environment that still sort of propelled the song but it wasn't going to be like hi-hats and snare drums and stuff all the time he yes. was interested in that so so he brought me in to do that i mean i i co-arranged more than half the record you know with, with t-bone you know and and rebo played a lot of the you know the, the the guitar parts you know on that as well a lot on sort of spanish nylon string guitar so so Mark Rebo and I didn't sound at all like what we do, what we were doing with weights. No. But, but it was that way of thinking. And Elvis really had a good time. Oh, I was also on the tour that Elvis did where um, the attractions would do um, 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 I Want You, 
you know, and and you know that record, you know, the, the blood the, and chocolate, the blood and chocolate, you know, the, the the sort of the beginning of the end of the attractions record. So they would do that, and then the Confederates would do King of America and a lot of um, R and B covers. You know, so I, I was in that tour as well. You know, so yeah, I think Elvis, as usual, just sort of wanted to try something different. And yes. then also, the, but the good news was we made Veronica work. You know, T-Bone knew and Elvis knew and I knew and everybody knew that there needed to be at least one hit for the first Warner Brothers album. And it wasn't like it wasn't like Elvis wasn't writing well, but but I think T-Bone picked Veronica as the one that was going to sort of drive, you know, to be the captain of the ship. Yes. To make Warner Brothers happy and also be a song that just sounded fucking great live. (laughs) So we did, you know, and. You know, and you know, I, I helped with the, with the with the arrangement and the timpani and the bells and the splings and spongs and the, the sort of like you know blowing up in your face and and all that other stuff. And then you know that that great that great vibe, you know that that perfect tempo, you know for the for the amount of syllables and all the words. I mean, it worked. It really, really worked. And, yeah, and no, it, so, it was fantastic. Oh. I got I got really fond memories of Elvis because I saw him quite in his early days when it was right. very intense with the attractions. Then I saw him at Glastonbury Festival where he did quite a set on his own. And I thought, God, this is a bit dull for the main okay. stage. And then suddenly the curtains came back and the attractions were there and, you know, they were really pelting it out. And then years, decades later, I saw him with Burt Bacharach doing that right. painted by memory. They did a couple of dates in London and that was just magical because I just love both Elvis and Burt Bacharach. So, you know, that was a great album. You know, it was just such a beautiful album. So um, it was a lucky time, really. But yes, it was was kind of curious. But then, you know, as the decade changes, and I've often noticed that, you know, the producers change, the sound changes, then you have a musical trend that, you know, we suddenly got the ecstasy. There was a dance scene going on, Chicago house music. Then there was grunge with Seattle. And then, you know, like the next kind of record labels are looking for the next gig and it's Nirvana. So wait, how do you as a musician think, oh, blimey, I'm not quite sure about this and that. And then you find yourself, you know, with Lou and John Cale. What was, you know, how did you manage to navigate that? Well, let's see. I mean, part of it was just a wish list. It was like a bucket list for me. You know, being in New York, I mean, I I was working with singer-songwriters like Joe Henry and doing more sessions with T-Bone Burnett. And, you know, we had done the Spike tour with the Route 5. And you know, so so things were going pretty well musically for me as a multi-percussionist, wanting to incorporate sort of what I liked about the Baccarat stuff, um, Four Seasons, Beach Boys, Victor Feldman, Swordfish Trombones. You know, the, if I can sort of sneak in a lot of these different kinds of sounds into pop music, then that was what I really wanted to do. Yeah. So I, I was lucky in that way. And I got sort of respected for being able to pull that off, you know, so it, it didn't all sound like throwing shit down the stairs just because you want to throw shit down the stairs. It was like, no, it's this kind of tune and it's those kind of gongs and this kind of, you know, the shaker thing. And that's what works with the guitars. I mean, it was really like well thought through sonic choices. And so I got, I, I was lucky to be known for that. And so what happened? The, um, the big transition sort of in a way for me was I was in New York and I got, I had worked with Scott Litt before the, the producer Scott Litt, because I knew the REM guys, yeah. you know, and I'd, and I'd, I'd played with them and, and they'd played on a couple, a couple of them and played on, you know, the records that I had produced, you know, so we sort of knew of each other and around the same age ish, you know, that kind of thing. So I got a call from Scotty Litt and um, he was producing 
um, uh, Paul Westerberg, you know, with the replacement. Oh, yes, Paul. And and they were making a record that ended up being called All Shook Down. Yeah. It wasn't really called that yet. And and in the beginning, well, you probably know better than I do, but in in the beginning, it was going to be a Paul Westerberg solo album. It wasn't really going to be a replacements album. But then... You know, Tommy Stinson started to play, and then you know, Slim Dunlap started to play, and then Chris, you know, came in and started playing a lot of drums, and and then Scotty called me and said, "Michael, we got a problem. You know, that we're we're making a record that's going to be the next replacements record, and Paul Westerberg is not happy with Chris's, you know, drum parts, so he wants to start replacing all the drum parts, but you can't tell anybody." <laughs> and I was like, "Oh shit. Okay. Well." Hmm. The good news is I really liked Paul Westerberg at the best of his writing. I was thinking this is really interesting. Yes. And then of course, this is R.E.M.'s producer calling me going like, do I want to play on this record? You know, do I want to play drums, you know, drum set, not the layering stuff, not the junkyard stuff, not throwing shit down the stairs, but, but, you know, like meat and potatoes, Charlie Wattsy kind of stuff. And yeah. I was going like, absolutely. Just throw the shit at me. So I went to the studio and had all my stuff delivered. And then again, in, in perfect at that time, replacements mode. That first night when I went, when I met them, Tommy Stinson was there and and um, Scott and, and Cliff Norell, who was the assistant engineer, they were working together. And and of course, Tommy and Paul and I went out and got drunk. You know, that there, there was a, that as as happens many times in New York, the, the, the street level place is a bar. Yes. A, so we went right down from the studio and got plastered. You know, and th- it was like a grilling kind of thing, not not a macho drinking kind of thing. But Paul hadn't stopped drinking then yet, you know. So I think he wanted to to see whether I would be like a buddy with him, not to get all fucked up and play badly. But, <laughs> but, but it was like, you know, could he and Tommy and I sort of like have a good time? Yes. And then we went back upstairs and played badly, you know. But then it was great, you know. So all my stuff was set up and ready to go. So then during the next two days, I played. I replaced um, the the drum parts on on more than half the album, you know, with, with not being able to tell anybody. Yes, this so is true. There, there were songs called "Happy Town" and "The Last" and all kinds of other stuff, you know, where it's me, you know, sort of playing like Charlie Wattsy kind of stuff. And then, you know, I'll, I'll make the point that the good news was Paul liked it and kept almost everything that I did. Scotty Litt was really happy, you know, as a, as a producer with the REM people, we were friendly and, and and worked well really well he got what he needed so they could mix now here's the thing here's the other thing that sort of changed my life that next week when they started mixing the album which which then was going to be a replacements album called all shook down um it was on the same record label as lou reed it was mm-hmm. on sire and i had already been in touch with lou because he was on my bucket list of people that i would like to play with so i had contacted him through um, Melanie Chacon, you know, Madonna's sister, yeah. who was working, who was working for Danny Lanois and Brian Eno with Sire Records and stuff. So, <clears throat> excuse me. So, so Melanie set it up where I could call Lou, and then we talked. And then I said, I'd really like to play drums on the next record. I know that you're not you're in between bands and blah 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 blah. What do you think? So I send him some stuff, like he asked, and then he called me back and he said, I don't hear anything, you know, that really matters which is what he was looking for, for his next band. It was after the New York. Which is, yes, amazing album. Which is like one of the best records, like ever, ever, ever. Yes. So to even think that I might 
work on some of the stuff that was written like after that. I was just pinching myself. But then Lou said no. I mean, I'd already worked with Allen Ginsberg, you know, writing music for Allen's poetry. I'd been on those Elvis and Tom Waits records and riff, riff, riff. But that didn't really get Lou going. So he heard that I was replacing the replacements drum tracks <laughs> on that album. You know, so we called Scotty up, you know, and he said, I hear Michael's playing drums, you know, on what's going to be this next replacements album. Can I come down to the studio and listen? So Lou Reed, you know, big bad Lou Reed, yes. went down to the studio and listened to the tracks that Scott was um, mixing that had me on drums, and and he called me up that day. I was I was in um, in in Woodstock, you know, at Bearsville Studio working on another record with Gavin Friday from from Ireland. And right. we were doing a record there, and so and so Lou called me up at at, at Bearsville and he goes, Michael, you got the gig. You're my next drummer, because I because on those tracks I sounded like Charlie Watts. Right. You know, it was like hardly any symbols. You know, it wasn't like bugger bugger bugger. It wasn't you know junkyard bish bish bish. It was just like there's the meat and potatoes. You know, so he could hear that I could do that, and that's what he wanted for um for what ended up being Magic and Loss. Yes, amazing. Yes, that was a good one. I did an interview with Tommy recently, actually. I think because he's got okay. a new kind of album out, and then he went into was it Bish and Balsh Bish Bish. bish. Bash and pop or something. Oh, exactly. Oh, there you go. And and Guns and Roses and God, he is so rock and roll, isn't he? Oh, he but really no, he's is. he's got an acoustic com combo, so um he's kind of right. calmed down a lot. So yes, magic and loss, because obviously no pressure after New York, which is one of the great albums of <laughs> the eighties. But then, you know, Lou Lou's really pulled it together at this stage, hasn't he? His his kind of next period. This this is because with a Lou album, it was like, yeah. Not that great, is it really? But then, Matt, you know, New York was like, okay, Dirty Boulevard, you know, just so many Romeo and Juliet. I mean, there were so many great tracks on that album. Even right. Side Two is brilliant. So it holds together. So Magic and Lost, this is, and Laurie and was he with Laurie at this stage as well? No, he was still married to Sylvia. Ah, because I'd seen her with, because she had done Strange Angels, which was a brilliant album. I went to see that live and thought she was just mesmerizing. So, oh, right, yeah. okay. I think they met and got together like as a couple. I mean, he and Sylvia later on, a few years later, you know, separated. And and I think it was, they separated, I think, either during or after the, the Velvet Underground reunion in 93. Right. So this was like, this was like 91, 92, 93, um, the, the ish you know, that I was working with Lou because he was, he had done Drella, you know, with John. So you didn't, you didn't work on that one at all? No, the, it, it's John, it's, it's Kale and, and, and Reed. That's it. It's right. only, it's only, it's only guitar, I think violin and piano and, 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 and then both of them singing. Yes. So magic and, so how was it, you know, you'd work with obviously a huge amount of people, but you know, people like, um, mm -hmm. Elvis and and obviously Tom Waits and there's Paul Westenberg. So so what was Lou like? Because because I've I've um, interviewed a few people who brought journalists who brought out books and they've had some great kind of Lou moments where he just destroys them, you know, um, oh. quite quickly. And they kind of almost loved it, you know. Oh, fantastic! He's already destroyed me, you know, in in the first couple of minutes of this interview. This is going to be really painful. <laughs> so um, well, so what had he had he loosened up by then? Well, in a way, I mean. I mean, he took apart a bunch of journalists, you know, during the years that I was with him as well, you know, and 
Right, it's sort of a battle scar in a way, or it's one of those tattoos, you know, the journalists want to show everybody like I survived a, a Lou Reed interview kind of thing. But one of the things that I learned was, I mean, when when Lou and I started to get to know each other, he was writing the lyrics and the music with Mike Rathke, you know, for what ended up being Magic and Loss. And, yes. and you know, Doc Palmas and, and Rita had died, you know, during that period. I mean, he was starting to write music anyway over like a year period. And then he lost people that were extremely close to him for real it wasn't yeah a PR stunt it wasn't anything I mean he he really got hit hard you know and he was getting getting closer to turning 50 you know that kind of thing I mean I don't know whether that had anything to do with it but but yeah I mean New York was it was a bit of a hit the um the Drella thing was was really well respected and you know you could get get back with John Cale and blah, 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 blah. And Sylvia was doing incredible business for him as his manager, I felt. And then also she was um, also doing a lot of the graphics and the and the scenic design and, and album design with him, you know, with the people at Sire Records. So the albums were looking great. You know, he was healthy. You know, he, he was, I mean, he was clean and sober. I mean, absolutely no drugs. I mean, there, mm. there was nothing like anywhere near that. And, you know, he would have some wine sometimes and that sort of thing, but he was really clean. And during rehearsal and during the gigs and all that other stuff, no beer on stage, no drinking at dinner, you know, that kind of thing. And it's like, if afterwards, if you wanted to have, you know, some wine at the hotel or something like that, then great. But absolute focus on the music, you know, so it was Rob Wasserman on bass and, and Mike Rathke on guitar, like on, uh, New York. Yeah. So I was, I was the new boy in school. Amazing. Yes. I mean, can you remember, because the my favorite song, probably everyone says is Sword of Damocles. Was that an mm -hmm. interesting one to brought, bring together? I do love the lyrics as well on that. Cause... Oh, absolutely. I mean, and then, you know, it, it was that big sort of, is that the one that has the big sort of like Hal Blaine? Ding, 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 ding. King, King. Yes. With with the with the guitar synthesizer. Do 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 I mean that's how Blaine, you know, be my baby. Yeah. You know, that, that's be my baby in 1963 with Ronnie, you know, with Ronnie Spector. You know, so but yeah, I mean, I guess one of the things that I'll always be happy about was that Lou allowed me to come up with a part that sounded different for each song. You know, so there were a couple that were barely on brushes, you know, the, the, with no big bass drum kind of moving things forward. There there was, you know, you know um, there was Magic and Loss, you know, with the big, big theatrical gang, 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 you know, and, and, you know, go for it, bish, 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 bish. And then, you know, what's good, you know, nice and focused. And then, you know, the, the stuff with, with little Jimmy Scott, you know, so... For me as a drummer, I was lucky that he trusted he trusted the songs, Mike Rathke's, you know, arranging Rob Wasserman's, you know, voice and and tone on on the electric upright bass. One of the things that'll sort of scare maybe younger session players or maybe make older session players laugh if they're listening to this is that for the for the Magic and Loss album, we did a, we did about a song a day after weeks and weeks and weeks and weeks and weeks and weeks and weeks of rehearsal like actually absolutely tearing every song apart all the lyrics all the stories all the characters the kind of kit that I was going to build for him with a, with a little bish and clank and crunch and that sort of thing but not a Tom Waitsy one but just yeah. just more under control 
trash can sounds so there weren't a lot of high-end symbols you know so we could we could sort of build a, a deeper sort of darker kind of drum kit which, which he thought was fine so what ended up happening was when we were in the studio making the album it was pretty much a song a day and he would pick out the one and and we were all there in the studio all day and then mike and he would would play the guitar parts and into the interlocking guitar parts and then rob would play his bass part or or lou would do what could be like a keeper vocal yeah. know, for the song and then it was either before or after rob did the bass and then i was on last the drum kit was on last on every song really? without, without click track no pressure then so i yeah no pressure exactly so i i needed thank god their time was really good you know it, it, it things didn't really speed up or slow down and that sort of thing but lou did not want to have headphones on you know while he was tracking yeah you know? so, so there wasn't like you know tick tock tick tock tick tock for them to play to then you know on the on the time code for me to play to so i i had to i had to memorize the sort of nooks and crannies of every song every night and i was <laughs> on last and and with me again with my sort of like cheerleader ego i was not going to let us go home without the drum track being done yes you know so it could be like midnight you know after two guitars and blues vocal and and rob's you know beautiful bass and then okay michael here goes let's let's go and i was like <laughs> fuck you know you know because i'm around all day you know trying to see where everything goes and how fast are they doing everything and i was going i am not going to look bad making this record i am not going to i'm not going to send lou home thinking that he doesn't have the track finished where yes. he would probably he had insomnia anyway so it wasn't easy for him to sleep and there was no way as his new drummer i wasn't new by then because we'd been rehearsing for so long and and i knew the i knew the writing process so we were we were really together but but i was like i'm going to i want everybody to go home thinking that we've really got it you know no mistakes no speeding up no slowing down no no shitty parts you know and that sort of thing so if lou wanted to come back the next day and go like let's try again you know that would be up to him yeah we wouldn't be like well you know gee luke i'm so sorry i don't really feel it or can we try it tomorrow or and it was like no fucking way you know by midnight <laughs> it, 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 we're done you know let's go to bed and the next song starts tomorrow it, yeah it was a it, it was my sort of like san diego macho it was it was like i'm not gonna i'm not gonna fail here <laughs> <laughs> Yes, God, that's quite intense, isn't it? And then, oh, what, what what's your next path after this? Do you then veer off into another direction in your career? Mm, boy, that's interesting. Um, not really. I mean, I was still playing up through the '90s and stuff. I I had met my lovely Swedish partner, who I've been with for now for like 37 years. Yes. We met in New York in 1987. You know, so. I, I'd i been playing with Tom, I was playing with Elvis, and it was before I started playing with Lou. So it was that, that late 80s period, Lena and I got together, and I started coming over to Stockholm, where she lived, you know, that here in Sweden, you know, a lot, you know, in between all these gigs. But I was still doing sessions for T-Bone Burnett in Los Angeles. Um, I played on his then wife's record, you know, Sam Phillips. Oh, um, yes, yes. Cruel Inventions, that's me. I did a lot of the arrangements with T-Bone on that um and th there were 
like folk rock people like John Gorka and and other people that were friends of Suzanne and 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 Sean Colvin. And so I was playing on records like that. And then Oh, and Victoria he, Williams. I think you played on one of her albums. I did. I produced Swing the Statue. Because I think um I really had a big moment with Suzanne. It was it was her follow-up album, Loose, that I was a bit obsessed with. It's, it's an amazing album. It's it's a really really beautiful record. You I know, mean, it's yeah. It builds it builds up from swing the statue, and then loose is just like unbelievable. So, oh, it is. It is actually. The, the, I mean, I was lucky. Um, I had worked with. How did that happen? All right. Um, who knew me? I mean, the, the band in LA and the, and the manager knew who I was. And and all oh, right, rough trade. That's right. Um, the the um the the rough trade A R person had heard of me through working with other records and and that sort of thing and knew I was like an indie producer kind of guy. So he put me together with Victoria, I think. So we put together a band and rehearsed and rehearsed and rehearsed and then made Swing the Statue in Los Angeles. Yes. And that, helped her, that that helped her sort of find another voice in a yes. way. One of the things that that really was good that came out of that, which I'm really proud of, was that. After after Swing the Statue came out, um, it was Tar, Bear, Tar, Tar Belly and Featherfoot and Swing the Statue and Boogeyman and um, 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 Can't Cry Hard Enough. You know, there were a lot of songs that were really, like, really, really beautifully, you know, written songs. And yes. I, gave, I gave that CD to Lou and, and, and Sylvia Reed. And, and they just fell in love with Victoria's you know, storytelling. You know, and and Lou was just like Tarbelly Tar and Featherfoot. I wish I wrote that song. <laughs> so, so I got them in touch with Victoria, and that yes. ended up actually being the thing that ended up um, creating the sweet relief. Um, you know, the the the, the health and well being. You know, sort of fund. Yeah, you know, it was for her because she was she was starting to get um, me. You know, she yes. was starting to get um, you know nerve nerve problems and stuff like that. But um, Lou became a really big fan of hers. And then to, to answer your question, the, um, because of working with Victoria and, and producing that record, Soul Asylum had the same uh, uh, manager. And, and, and they actually did a version of Summer of Drugs right. know, on, on the Sweet Relief album. And, and then, then they, they, were, they were making with Michael Beinhorn the record that ended up you know, breaking them like big, you know, with with Runaway Train and stuff, which I wasn't involved in. But it was around that same time, you know, of, of making those records in the early 90s and stuff. Yes. And then there, was, manager, there was people like Vic Chestnut, wasn't there as well? He's He was on the scene. Well, Victoria introduced me to Vic Chestnut. Um, mm. Victoria introduced me to Jeff Tweedy, you know, um, and and we, we knew a lot of the same people in Georgia, you know, that were friends theirs and the rem people you know everybody was sort of friendly you know with each other so absolutely and so i got to answer your question i got to be on a bunch of records that were involving some of those people as well yeah there was a kind of really amazing chapter of fantastic singer songwriters it went a little bit as alt countries into it because there was stacy earl there was gillian welsh you mentioned there was a guy joe henry who did a brilliant album with a track called monkey from an album i think called fuse which was just brilliant and there was a guy called jim white who had no, I think right. someone like um, Lucinda Williams doing all, Static on the Radio, which was just this. Yeah, yeah, yeah. A lot of great, and Rosanna Cash did a song album called Ten Songs Demo because she thought, well, I'll okay. I'll do these, I'll take them to the producer, and he said, no, they're fine, just let's do them, let's not yeah. not overproduce it. So it was a yeah. it was a kind of you were there at sort of a glorious time of that kind of getting back to that more rustic sound after the bombastic eighties, I think. 
You know, it's sort of true. I mean, when I when I did the first John Colvin record, John John Leventhal was the producer. You know, John and Sean were a, a c- couple then. You know, so the first Columbia record, and then he still did Sunny Came Home and stuff after that. They broke up after that, but um, and then John went on to marry Roseanne Cash. You know, so so like you said, I mean, some of the stuff was not incestuous and stuff, but like you said, a lot of people were meeting each, different people around that time ish you know within a few years Suzanne Vega had broken up with Anton Sanko and then he moved you know to LA and started doing you know the film scores but then you know she got together with Mitchell Froom you know and then they made 99.9 degrees and they had you know and then so a lot of Victoria's friends I I had met as well so you're absolutely right I mean yes because Suzanne I saw Suzanne tour and I think it was her sort of mid-90s album that had um was it Pete Thomas from the attractions on drums actually at that stage Yeah, Mitchell was using Pete on a lot of the stuff yes absolutely yes that was Um, a fantastic album so yes so yes your 90s you were hopping from Sweden back to America I was I was going back and forth um the, the thing that ended up with Soul Asylum was that they hired me to be the music director and, and arranger for their MTV Unplugged show. You know, so uh, the, during the 90s, you know, MTV Unplugged in the States yes. was a really big thing. So Runaway Train was just about to come out and they knew it was going to be sort of big. And then they needed somebody who could sort of be a band leader and sort of a big brother to pull I mean they were tired you know they were just about to be famous and they'd never been famous before and things were really working for them and it was going to be a big push you know from Sony yeah and MTV. you know so I was brought in to 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 co-write the charts do the arrangements rehearse the band and sort of get them in shape you know for the for the tv show so it was um and, and I had it was almost like the um, the Confederates um, multi-percussion setup for me. You know, I had I had timpani, I had vibraphone, I had marimba, you know, I had all kinds of shakers and tambourines and glockenspiel and blish, blish, blish. And then those were all worked into, you know, the arrangements. You know, and with, with Unplugged, no electric guitars, not a whole lot of drum kit. Um, we had Ivan Neville, you know, yeah. on, on organ. And and we had three wonderful session players that were friends of mine from New York. You know, it was a string trio, and, and that's that's the show we did, and it worked out really, really, really well. Had they they hadn't worked with Sterling Campbell at that stage, had they? They had, but nobody was supposed to know <laughs> because because at the time Sterling Sterling sort of did for Grave Dancers Union what I did in a way for the replacements all shook down. You know, so Sterling came in. It's Sterling on Runaway Train, if I remember yeah. correctly, and Sterling on on a lot of the other songs on Grave Dancers Union with with Soul Asylum. But but the Soul Asylum actually had a a touring drummer, and and their regular drummer was was on the show. Sterling joined. Right, I can sort of tie this together. They they also did another big bigger orchestra, um, unplugged-y kinds of things with Much Music in Toronto. Right. Uh, so they hired me again to be the co-music director, you know, co-writing the arrangements, rehearsing the band, you know, dealing with the with the string sections and all that other stuff. So we did a show in Toronto that was like that ended up being a full, you know, um, um, video production. And, yes. Because so it's interesting because because obviously he goes on to work with David Bowie quite a lot, but before that Bowie was he was always good on his kind of musicians. He he worked with Dennis Davis, didn't he, on those kind of late seventies albums? Who just had the most extraordinary sound, didn't he? On especially the, the oh, 
the low album's production of his drumming is just stunning. It really is. I mean, the and 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 what was it, Carlos Alomar and 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 I think Earl Slick the first time, and you know that sort of thing, and the Scary Monsters, and you know, and all that sort of thing. That and, and, and you know, Dennis was there. I never met him, but 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 he was there during the seventies. But but right, what ended up happening was the Sterling had the, the Bowie gig, and then Soul Asylum offered Sterling an actual piece of being in Soul, Soul Asylum. So he took a sabbatical from Bowie. And then, um, and then went with Soul Asylum for a while, and then he left Soul Asylum and went back to um, went back to Bowie. But and then in between there, Zach Alford, you know, Zach and Zach and Sterling for all the the, the drum aficionados out there, they both I think went to the, the High School of Performing Arts, right, in New York City. So they were they were sort of, and and also uh, Charlie Drayton. Uh, was younger and uh, Steve Steve Jordan was older you know so some of the best drummers coming out of New York actually went to that high school and, right but, but so so when Sterling like when Sterling was playing with Bowie Zach was playing with B-52s right and, and, and then they sort of went back and forth you know in some of the best bands of the 90s I mean absolutely Zach and and uh, Sterling were two of my absolutely favorite drummers. Amazing. So then, then from that period, how do you then sort of navigate your next decade and and sort of where you are now? Well, I, I guess the thing was, I started thinking that I wanted to sort of plant my plant my feet and my heart and my career more in Sweden. And the '90s, it was it was Dennis Pop and uh, the beginning of Ace of Bass. Um, the beginning of Max Martin. Max you know. Martin, yes, the so famous he, Max. Yeah, absolutely. Before he became famous, he was a bass player and a singer in a hard rock band called It's Alive. And then he started working as a as a like an extra engineer with Dennis Pop. You know, he did Ace of Bass and Dr. Alban and that sort of thing. That was the beginning. It was it was before Backstreet Boys and before Britney. Yes. But they started getting some hits in Europe. So they all got it. They all started getting recommended for all this stuff, which is now what everybody wants from Katy Perry to Pink to to, you know, Justin Bieber and 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 Justin Timberlake and all that stuff. But but actually that my version of that was I was starting to meet some of those people, even though that wasn't really the music for me. Yes. But, but the, the the indie music scene, I started um, the, the short answer was I started producing indie bands in Sweden. And so I was I was producing and then doing arrangements for um, indie indie pop bands here. Were they kind of like British indie pop bands in sound and quality? Yes, yeah, sort of. I mean, there there was. I mean, every most everybody were were Blur and Oasis fans. Yes. Oh, you know, and Pulp, you know, and that kind of thing. But but there were bands called Eggstone, This Perfect Day, um, um, The Wanna Dies, Popsicle. You know, there there were a lot of really really good. Um, souls, salt, you know, the, 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 there were indie bands that a lot of them sort of made it okay. The Cardigans were probably. Oh, yes. Well, they were the, well, they were the, the yes. Best. Yeah. Rise and Shine was their kind of big breakthrough, wasn't it? Really? Absolutely. Yeah. With with the, the the powerful Nina. I mean, what a what a wonderful singer. And yes. the band was so was so musical. I mean, everybody here was happy when they started to break through. Yeah, so so you you sort of got into the zeitgeist of of that period, really. And then obviously there was a rise, yeah, like Max Martin. Then there was a period when ABBA were really sort of frowned upon, and then there was the musical, you know, and right. then the stage music, and then suddenly everything became cool again with Sweden, didn't it? 
It did actually. I mean, in the seventies, a lot a lot of Swedes, um, and not to generalize, but but there was the anti-war movement here, um, in in Sweden. The um, there was the political sort of folk rock was was a plus you know you were telling stories and against the establishment and against the war and that sort of thing and those were the cool bands to mm-hmm. be in. not not the cool like in, in leather you know pants and, and and good shoes but the cool meaning sort of um politically correct you know though that's why you have folk rock so you can tell political stories so yes. the, so that the actual pop bands you know they were getting on the radio like abba you know they were really frowned upon by a lot of people little little did everybody know that you know 40 years later almost everybody still talks about abba and they don't talk about the political bands anymore really i mean but then on the other hand you you take the abba songs apart and they're absolutely indestructible every every single thing is a hook their melodies on the melodies you know everybody can sing you know that sort of swinglish it feels good the um the 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 recording aficionados, you know, later have gone in to figure out what 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 do they do with Verispeed? What do they do with like doubling and tripling and quadrupling the voices and the guitars and the drums and everything to get this sound? You know, mm. now, now you know they're like you know the Einsteins of of seventies you know um, uh, music production, and they yes. deserve. Benny and Bjorn are absolute absolute top of the line thinkers as as far as building songs and and arrangements and stuff i i yeah it, it's amazing yes they, they is per- perfection really isn't it let's face it did you oh. then keep in production or did you sort of start doing other bits as well or well in- yeah i guess i've always done a little bit of everything i mean in the late 70s when i got out of grad school with the paul winter consort this was like 77 78 i was i was giving you know workshops and master classes in in um creativity um improvisation um um collaboration um jamming you know, and, and also i was teaching music um in modern dance companies you know mm-hmm. at, at a couple of different universities you know so anyway long story longer i, I had always been teaching you know so i was never teaching because i couldn't play i was teaching because that's how you that's how you present you know the the the, the the, the, the pass on the baton you know yeah. like the tra- the tradition goes through the players who also teach i i felt and and in new york in the 70s a lot of the best players they were they were teaching at the berkeley school of music in boston they were teaching in the in the jazz department at princeton you know the and you know pat Matheny was teaching when he was 18 you know and 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 these amazing players were teaching all over the united states <clears throat> excuse me when they weren't on tour you know, so for me, it was like, yeah, teaching is the thing that you do to learn more about your own craft yeah. and to present to other people that that experience. So, yeah, I mean, the last 20, 30 years here in, in Sweden, I've been teaching master classes, you know, being on panels, you know, working at um, music conferences, you know, South by Southwest, you know, the, yeah, t- helping teach people how to actually network, you know, how do you meet people? What 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 was it like, you know, in New York? To sort of go from interesting situation to interesting situation and not screw stuff up, mm. you know, gratitude, meditation, all kinds of things. You know, so yes. it's always been a bit of all of that. And did you? And did you also have you know yourself 
um, I wouldn't, it's not self-sufficiency, but de- realizing that you were going to have to clear up, clean up yourself in terms of diet, lifestyle, yoga, running, things. Did, did Were there moments that you thought, yeah, I'm going to have to start doing this stuff now if I'm going to enjoy mm. my later life? Not not really in that way. I mean, I was lucky that that all of the experimenting and the sort of creative chemicals, you know, that I took from the, the 70s and 80s and stuff, I enjoyed... I enjoyed actually the trips. I enjoyed the the sort of recreational. What is the world, and you know, what are clouds, and what's water, <laughs> and how do things sound? I mean, I'm an old, you know, yes, the universe know, could be this little speck under my nail. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, I I wasn't so much like sitting in you know in in the mud, going like, oh wow, you know, that this is the world. But but absolutely, I mean, one of the things, I mean, this is sort of may be true because you know going through therapy off and on during my life you know just to sort of clear out my brain you know i was lucky that i didn't have the, the type of addictive personality where the types of recreational moments and 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 um adventures you know chemical adventures or or psychedelic moments or i never got stuck anywhere it was really yeah. like going to disneyland part of the time so like, <laughs> this is mr toad's wild ride this this is the this is going down the Matterhorn. This is what do my senses do? You know, so I mean, because I had done Gestalt therapy, I had been in other therapy, I'd done in mind games and that sort of thing in college in the 70s in California, as we did. So it was more like, wow, you know, how does the world work? You know, an atom is like a tiny universe, you know, that sort of thing. I mean, without going like, oh wow, Timothy Leary was like, no, 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 no. All these vibrations, that is music. Mm-hmm. That, those are the building blocks of what I do for a living. You know that that's really interesting to me. So, so I, I enjoy that, and I didn't I didn't get stuck anywhere. I could have and should have, you know, been working out more the last forty years. You know, it, I've gone through, you know, my cancer scare and, and operations, and you know, then I'm in my late sixties now. You know, so things aren't working as well as they used to. But I didn't necessarily beat myself up like some of the people like on the Lower East Side did, you know, I, I was never a junkie, you know, I didn't get stuck. Yeah. Like some, some of the hard rock people did, absolutely not. And I, I didn't go through the kind of stuff that Lou did or, or that, that Bowie did. I mean, I enjoyed, you know, colors and senses and all that other stuff, but I, I didn't get stuck really. Yes, well, that's that's brilliant. And and for what projects have you got lined up now and you're sort of going to be doing in the next 12 months? Mm-hmm. There's there's a new creativity and music hub called the Node, um, which is right downtown Stockholm. It literally, anybody who's ever been to Stockholm, there's a there's a fountain right next to the big culture house in the middle of a bunch of hotels and and right where the main subway station comes in. And it, it's now it, it's co-sponsored by the city of Stockholm, um, the Tim Berling Foundation, which is Avicii's family. You know the late great, you know Tim Berling, who was Avicii. You know the the EDM guy who died, unfortunately. So there there's a there's a mission and a brief about health, um, fitness, um, sensory, um, making records, uh, culture and society. You know that sort of thing. And so we have a we have a space now that's been built with multiple recording studios, rehearsal spaces. There's a restaurant and a bar and a performance space. So we're starting to build this sort of like new hub of music and creative activity r- directly downtown. So so that's my main gig right now. I'm, I'm working with them as a consultant. Um, yes. 
I'm, I'm what am I called? I'm called the community creative lead. You know, which means, yeah, which means that I can call up, you know, people that I've worked with over the last 10, 20, 30 years and, and see if they'll see if they'll work with us or teach a class or, you know, be on a on a webinar and that sort of thing. Nice. And with, with your advisory, you know, a board on mm-hmm. South, Southwest by Southeast. Right. Yes. What, what does that mean? Well, um, the, the, there's a there's a subset of the of the of the advisory committees called um, panel pickers. So I'm on the group of um, advisory board people around the world who are then given um, the the um, um, submissions for what people would like to present. You know, the the, the a panel, a presentation, a meetup, um, a, a product placement, um, how the how the world works, um, AI. Um, um, being in the recording studio, fashion and music and health, you know, that sort of thing. So um, people like me actually then watch and listen to like 200 each um, uh, submissions, you know, for what will be the, the on on the schedule, the official schedule for the next year. Right. So, so I finished that during August. You know, that there's a period where um, around the world, people who have done this for a number of years and are trusted, you know, by the South by Southwest administration, they go out into the into the creative business industry, and and people like me then really go through: Can this be people speak? Is this a really you know compelling idea? You know, is, is this just someone trying to sell, sell their own product? And, and and also we then literally advise the South by Southwest administration on things that we think should actually be in the official schedule. You know, for the next year. Yeah, I started going to South by Southwest in the late '80s. I was I was there in the first or second one, you know, like 35 years ago. I've known a lot of the people on the on the board forever. I've played there a bunch of times, like with Chris Damey and then Peter Holsapple from the DBs. I've played there with Marshall Crenshaw. So a lot of the, and I produced records there, you know, so a lot of people in Austin, Texas have known me, you know, since then. So yes. I'm happy to still be involved. I'm, I'm, I'm happy they still let me, they still let me come to the party. <laughs> God, that does sound. You've had the most extraordinary life. I have to say, it's been absolutely mind blowing how much. So far, you've... so good. <laughs> well, <laughs> yes. Well, hopefully, another 20, 30 years. And um, thank you. you've cracked it. Well, look, thank you. I'll let you, you know, I'll let you go now. But um, thank you ever so much for giving me the time for this. This has been absolutely fascinating. And um, yeah, it's just so stimulating, I have to say. And if you want, I can always send you the link and you can always put it on your social media platform sites um okay and yeah because it's I'm, I'm absolutely fine with that but um yes well thank you for saying yes and thank you for giving me the time because it's been an absolute fascinating journey actually and then so, thanks back david it was very kind you know for you to reach out to me so i really appreciate it as well yes well look have a lovely evening and i'll okay. um, i'll keep in touch but take care thanks okay. a lot see you okay, later thanks Bye-bye. 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 and that it and that dear listener is the end of the interview. You'll probably gather that. Uh, a massive thank you to Michael Blair for giving me the time for that interview. You can find out a bit more about him if you, I suppose, kind of go on various search engines and Facebook as well. I believe he's got quite a bit of information there. This has been the C86 Show, David E. So if you want to contact me, you can. Facebook, Twitter, Instagram. That's, um, yeah, C86 Show. Just Google that. And also, all these interviews have been archived on Spotify, iTunes, Podbeam. It's true. So have a great week. Stay safe.